The Start on On Demand. How would you like to have a four-day work week? Microsoft tried it out in Japan and productivity jumped 40%. Canada is lagging behind with patient safety, including an increased number of foreign objects being left inside patients after surgery. We'll tee up Superhero Showdown with the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra and the Couch Potatoes with conductor Stuart Chaffetz, who is so excited to bring his show to Winnipeg this weekend. And I almost had a panic attack on stage with John Cleese at the Centennial Concert Hall when technology nearly failed me. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb, who's off until Tuesday. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Thursday, November 7th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, not really. <laughs> McNabb is not here today. She is going to be back on Tuesday. She's got still like, uh, I don't know, 700 vacation days to burn. 6.97 now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and here's the thing with McNabb. She works so hard and puts in so many hours. 100%. And at Global, they could bank their time and... She had how much time banked and vacation days that she had just didn't take, and now she's got a it's use it or lose it kind of deal. And so. we don't want her to lose it. She's earned those vacation days. So, McNabb, go back to bed. Go yeah. back to sleep. Yeah, she was working hard setting up the show for us yesterday throughout the afternoon and likely into the evening, so we appreciate that, McNabb. So some well-deserved time off for Loren. She's getting a five-day we're, uh, weekend, what, right? How would you like a three-day weekend every week? I think that would be terrific. Not practical for everyone, no. But I think there are lots of circumstances where we could make this happen. Yeah, yeah, and that's the reason why we're talking about this. Is Microsoft? They tried a four-day week in Japan. And productivity jumped 40%. Okay, so Japan, if you know anything about the work ethic and the work culture in Japan, they are incredibly dedicated to their jobs. They have these long commutes, a lot of people, to the point where sometimes if you are, this is going to sound a little sexist, but based on what I know, that in the past, how about we go by that, that uh, a lot of men would actually sort of do the commute and stay in the major city for a couple of days and work ridiculous hours and then sort of do the commute home closer to the weekend. Oh, my God. Not every single day, not all the time, but that was that's very common in Japanese work culture, very dedicated to the job. Schools typically don't have custodial staff because the kids clean the schools. That's the way it goes really? in Japan. <laughs> yes, that's part of your school day is to clean up after yourself and then to uh, help clean the school. Isn't that, was it Japan who was one of the countries who their fans would clean the stands of the World Cup? Absolutely. Absolutely, they'd clean up after themselves. Uh, apparently, if you go, uh, my buddy Dave went to Japan for his 50th birthday celebration. It was his gift to himself. Yep. And that was the first thing that he commented on was just how clean it is in Japan. They just, the, the, just part of the culture. Wow. What was the other team? Because there were two teams, right? Yeah, there were. And I can't was remember. Was it an African nation? Yeah, I want to say that it was. I think you're remembering that, right? I think we both are. If you know, 780-6868. I know we could do the Google foo here but it's way more fun when you let us know who that was and then i think the i think the teams faced each other didn't they (laughs) the stands were probably never cleaner (laughs) well that was in brazil i think yeah so the the brazilians probably said you know we could save a whack of cash (laughs) (laughs) schedule these two teams against one another we wouldn't have to pay anybody to clean up after the game whatsoever so there's that four-day work week we're going to have that discussion coming up at 6 45 actually we'll tee it up around 6 42 and then we'll have the group chat at 6 45 and then at 905 we're going to speak to recruiting from the creative group they've done a survey on this and we'll ask them would this even work in canada also put a poll up on our 680 cjob instagram and i think i'll put it up on our facebook as well would you like a four-day work week and you nailed it actually greg one of the options i put yes of course or no not practical like for for us it just wouldn't be practical unless the four-day work week was the norm yes 
And then all of a sudden your weekend was, you know, a traditional weekend, so to speak, would be Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or Sunday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, something like that. Then maybe that would become the norm in this industry as well. I don't see it in the short term, but but you never know. Our regular listener and regular texter, Tim, says he already works a four-day work week. Oh, yeah? He has Wednesdays off. I know what he does for a living, and that makes sense because when I was a milkman, you had Wednesdays off as well. You worked your tail off Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and had Wednesday off because you had a route where you had customers that were getting twice weekly Delivery. Oh, okay. So that worked out nicely, and I loved it. I loved having Wednesdays off because I think if you go back in my school record, that was probably the day I took off more, more, most often. Self-imposed days off yep. were mostly Wednesdays. Oh, nice. Okay. Wednesdays off. That would be nice to have that break in the middle of the week. And we also uh, don't want to be, rem- we'd be remiss if we didn't acknowledge the, the, how many people work shift work where you work, like I've worked schedules where it was six days on, three days off. Uh, you know, all city emergency workers, I think, are four days on, four days off. Is that right? I, I suspect that sounds familiar to me. I know. Uh, well, I know, like, uh, we have a friend who works uh, 911 dispatch. He's four four days on, four days off. Oh, I think nice. firefighters are four days on, four days off. Because are they 11-hour or 12-hour shifts yeah, or something, right? shifts are longer. Right. So they, they, they work a ton of hours, but then they get the four days off. And, those, and that's huge in bigger cities where you have an hour and a half, say, commutes each way. Yeah. To take that one work day out of your routine, that mm-hmm. saves you a ton of time. And you take, you know, the lunches and the this and the at. <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld always talks about when he goes to see his parents in uh, Florida, you know, for three days. And then you take out the sleeping and the eating and the watching TV and the traveling back and forth from the airport. It's really just a cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a scary headline at cjob.com, and it's our top story by a mile as in terms of how many people are reading this story. Winnipeg Jets' Brian Little suffered brain bleed after getting struck by Puck. Global's Russ Hobson has details from the injury suffered in Tuesday's loss to New Jersey. Back at the line. Morrissey leaves it. Ouch! That nails Brian Little. Sources tell Global News that Little suffered a brain bleed after getting struck by a puck in his ear by a slap shot from Nikolai Ehlers. The Jets say he was transported to St. Boniface Hospital, where he received 25 to 30 stitches to close a laceration. He was then transferred to the Health Sciences Center's neurological unit for further evaluation, and he remains in hospital tonight under observation. He was alert at all times and was said to be in good spirits this morning. Little just returned from a concussion a little over two weeks ago. So that was Global's Russ Hobson reporting last night on Global Winnipeg. Now, Greg, you had uh, a reaction to this. Yeah, I find it unusual to be releasing information about a professional athlete's medical condition that doesn't come from the team itself. Just feels unusual to me, and you'll have to forgive me for being uncomfortable with it. Yesterday, here's what the Jets released, and Russ had most of it in his report during the third period of last night's game versus New Jersey Devils. Winnipeg Jets forward Brian Little was struck near the ear by a shot. Before the completion of the game, Little was transported to St. Boniface Hospital, where he received 25 to 30 stitches to close a laceration. Little was subsequently transferred to the Health Sciences Center's neurological unit last night, that being two nights ago now. Little was alert at all times and is in good spirits this morning. All of that is in our report This is what the JET statement says. Further updates will be provided when available. So that's sort of the usual modus operandi for professional sports teams, right? We'll give you an update when it's available and we feel that it's it's necessary. Okay. And so to have something about someone's personal medical situation, I understand they're a professional athlete. Lots of people are concerned. You know, my wife... I've had lots of friends, hey, have you heard anything about Brian Little? No, I haven't heard anything. I, you know, I know what you know sort of thing. I get why people are concerned. I understand completely. Is the, is the hesitation, does it have to do with the fact, like I know that, that in hockey in particular, they always just classify it as an upper body injury or a lower body injury, and they do that 
they correct me if I'm wrong because you're the sportsing guy, but they do that to protect the players from getting targeted, right? Like if if they say uh, he's down with a right knee injury when they come back, is it so to? prevent guys from targeting their right knee? Yeah, there's a huge, uh, huge argument to be made for that, and that's my understanding as part of the reason. Yet in football, where it's a game where, A, players notoriously go after other guys and their pre-existing or pre-occurred injuries, uh, they're a lot more open about it. And I think it's to kowtow to the gambling public a little bit more so that gamblers can figure out where guys are in terms of their recuperation, whether or not they should bet on games or not, sounds kind of odd, but the NFL owes a lot of its success to mm. gamblers and the interest that it creates. Yeah. Uh, but for me, you know, this is just, it's a personal issue and just like the Dustin Bufflin situation, right? We'll tell you more when we can. Um, I know in this day and age of social media, there's all sorts of rumors. There are millions of rumors around about hockey players and football players in this town and I know we wouldn't be reporting this if we didn't know it to be true. Just feels just a little bit awkward to me. It's a personal issue, and well, that's just where I sit on it. So I just was feeling a little bit uh, awkward this morning. It is an unusual, and and as I, I use the word scary because it is scary to to see the words brain bleed. It's not something you see often in, nope. in anywhere. No, and and clearly this is a, a potentially serious situation. There was no hiding from the rest of the National Hockey League what ha- happened to Brian Little on Tuesday night. Yeah. Everybody saw it. Everybody across North America has seen the has seen the video of it. So there was no hiding what happened to him. So you can't make the argument of using upper body injury in order to, you know, maybe save him from uh, other players targeting him. So that's that's not in play here. But the whole idea of uh, reporting this, I guess, is because people really do care. And I get it. I understand it from that point of view. Just unusual to not release team-released information. Well, coming up at 7.55, Hextall and Hockey is going to break down how the loss of Brian Little from the Winnipeg Jets lineup will affect the team. Now we want to switch gears and pose the question to you. How great would it be to have a three-day weekend every single week? NBC's Tom Costello takes a look at why. And if you don't like the way that I take phone messages, here, take them yourself. Ever have one of those weeks? As almost everyone knows, 40-hour, five-day weeks can be a little stressful. So how about this, a four-day week, three-day weekend? At software company Wildbit in Philadelphia, that's the schedule, and Anna Grace Ward loves it. You really come back to your work on Monday morning feeling refreshed and uh, like you have new ideas. And that's the whole point. Employees work 32 hours a week, not 40. Because, says CEO Natalie Nagel, that fifth day of eight hours simply isn't that productive. There's no work. They're tired. They're spent. They've used up all their mental capacity. And I just don't believe in asking people to sit in their chairs and stare at a screen. It works, she says. The company is private, profitable, and growing fast. Across the country in Seattle, the graphic designers at Killer Visual Strategies also get three-day weekends, working 40 hours over four days. They made the change after watching productivity fall on Fridays. Now, productivity is up 20%. Most Fridays, you'll find Aaron McCoy enjoying the outdoors. Compared to when I was working a five-day work week, I really get a lot more time um, to just relax and enjoy um, spending time with friends. It's an idea that's spreading. This summer, Microsoft tried a trial run four-day work week in Japan and saw productivity jump 40%. 17% of employers nationwide now offer employees options to compress their work week. The benefits say company execs, fewer redundant meetings, better use of employee time, and a benefit to retain skilled employees. This four-day work week is a key piece of making sure that people really want to stay a part of this team and be able to produce the work at the the caliber that we expect and need. So if you look at it from the perspective of your brain needs to be treated like a muscle, it needs to be worked hard but given rest so that it gets stronger and better. Three days every week to recharge and reset. NBC's Tom Costello. So coming up in a moment, 
We're going to have a chat about this. The four-day work week. Would it increase productivity? And if that wouldn't work for you, are there other things that you would like to see Mm. at work to help you increase productivity, to help your work-life balance? If you want to weigh in, text us at 204-780-6868. We just put something up on Facebook, a poll, asking the question, would a four-day work week work for you? You can also weigh in on a poll on our 680CJOB Instagram. We would love for you to follow us on both of those, by the way. Follow us on Instagram. Give us a like on Facebook. Mackling and McGarry, McNabb, back Tuesday. Jeff Braun is here. Kelly Moore is here. Jeff Fortier, the headline, Microsoft tried a four-day work week in Japan. Productivity jumped 40%. (laughs) So at 9.05, we're going to talk to a recruiting firm. They did a survey on this. We'll ask them, would this even work in Canada? But in the meantime, got us wondering, would a four-day work week work for us? So Kelly Moore. What say you on this? Well, it's kind of funny. After I finish every Monday, as I'm walking out the parking lot to my car, down to a four-day week. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I tell you, at this stage of my career, I love those four-day weeks. You know, when we have the long weekends and that, it just uh, it just seems, I don't know, that you get, and I'm not nearly as busy as you are with two boys that are involved in everything under the sun, but uh yeah, those long weekends are, those would be fantastic. They're glorious. Oh, let's be honest. Yeah, they really are. But yeah. how long before, let, let's assume that the new work week is Monday through Thursday. How long before Thursday becomes the new Friday? That'd be fine too. Yeah, three-day yeah, week? three-day week. I would, do, I would do a 16-hour day, a 16-hour day, and an eight-hour day. That's really? Four, that's 40 hours. I'd gladly yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah. I'd put, to to do that and then get four days off for sure. Well, I, I'd even be willing to do four twelves. Yeah, well, that's one of the what was one of the things that really struck me as interesting in that report we played just a few minutes ago because that was what we thought. Well, four day week, I guess we would just work longer days. Well, no, this one company is just doing thirty two hours. They just cut one day and they didn't reduce their their pay. No. And they, the people... Uh, from Are they hiring? I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Microsoft in Japan. <laughs> well, that particular company wasn't Microsoft. And oh, it's we'll, a different we'll one. We'll go back and find that for you after. But the, they want their employees to just be fresh. They want them to be happy and productive. And so that's something I could get down with if we suddenly had one less day of work, no more hours, and no less pay. Let's go. Sounds like the Mike O'Shea school of thought here, Kelly Moore. Yeah, exactly, as they prepare for the CFL West semifinal. But let's face it, you know, the the more refreshed you are, I think the more productive you are. However, I don't know that that could be universal for every single industry. You know, you'd you'd have to pick and choose which ones that it would be applicable to. But, uh, boy, I'll tell you, the ones where they could make it work, I would say take a long, hard look at that. Yeah, and Adam raises a good point as well. Four-day work week would be great. However, if you're having to do 40 hours and four days in exchange, someone has to be around to pick up the kids from school. They're not changing their schedule, so it just wouldn't work for some of us. Well, I was going to say, for me, like it'd be great, but for me on the weekends, I'm a night hawk, and like, having to come back here at 5 o'clock in the morning, it screws my, I screw up my sleep schedule every weekend, so... That would be hard for me to go from, you know... Three days and nights? Yeah. It, it, I would screw myself over so bad. So, lots of nurses, lots of uh, EMS workers screaming at the radio right now, hey, that's what we do. And yeah. then they do this shift switch where you go from working days to nights. To nights. That would be a nightmare. Yeah, well, the book factory I used to work at in Altona did shift work. I, I had my little Joe job thing where I didn't have to work shift, but lots of guys did. And there was sort of like a six to two shift, which is eight hours, Monday to Friday, and then a two to midnight, 10 hours. And that was only Monday to Thursday. And then every now and then, and I don't, I don't know that they still do it, but back like 20 years ago, there was a time where they get super busy and need to run the presses overnight. And if you volunteered for midnight to six, you got to do that for maybe just, maybe even that might've been only been three days or maybe four minutes, like 24 hours a week. But still, full week's pay. Oh, oh wow. that would be nice. Yeah, yep. And lot- every you know single guy that worked at the factory is like, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when my dad worked for the BC Ferries, they worked seven on and seven off. And I believe they were 12-hour shifts uh, that, that they worked each day. So by, by the end of the seven days, 
you know, when dad was kind of my age and he was still working, he, you know, there wasn't a lot of gas left in the tank, but you had seven days to regroup too. So you could get a lot done in those seven days off. Yeah, no kidding. I'm just trying to think how would I, seven days on, I think I could get used to that. But my fear is that after taking a week off, how do you get back into that seven days on? Because sometimes you, when you're working every day, you're working long hours every day, it becomes a sort of just a habit that you right. can just, if yeah. you're tired, you just sort of push through it. You just power through it. But when you're coming back after a vacation, essentially, every second week. But loading cars onto a ferry and loading cars off a ferry, you know, I mean, it, it was, I don't want to say it was easy work, but it was fairly straightforward what you were doing. So I don't know that, you know, like in our industry, you're away for seven days. There's a lot you can miss. Mm -hmm. And then you have to pick up and start to be able to converse about it. Oh, it would be impossible. It's difficult even when you're on holidays. You know, you're coming back to work on Monday. You start reading and catching up on stuff. If you haven't been doing it the entire time you're off, you're starting two or three days before. Your brain (laughs) doesn't shut off. You're always uh, in that mode of, you know, you got to be talking about this stuff. I was on vacation this was many years ago, and I can't remember. I must have been out of the country or something. I certainly out of the province because I came back, and I was about. It was a couple of months later that I had. I finally learned that someone prominent had passed away oh, <laughs> while boy. I was on vacation. Oh boy! And I was like, yeah. "Isn't this person supposed to be do that?" And they're like, "They died three months ago." I was like, "Oh my god! I didn't, didn't miss that." <laughs> and then I looked at it. It's like, "Oh, I was on vacation." That's what yeah. That, that's one of the things too. You have to discipline yourself. Like I go away every year for three weeks, but when I'm away and and uh, early in the morning because I still wake up, I make sure I do a lot of homework so that I stay as up to date as I I possibly can. But that's the only. If I wasn't prepared to do that, I don't know that I could. I could uh, go away for that long uh, time. But I think in some industries, you know, that seven on, seven off could certainly work too. And, uh, you know, there, there are all sorts of different ways to try to keep your employees productive. But I love I love this idea, four-day uh, weeks, man. Like, <laughs> if we could do it in radio, it would be fabulous. Well, if that became the norm, perhaps maybe that would happen, right? If, if the traditional weekend became a three-day weekend, it might happen. But it'll be, in, it'll be specific employers that go, yeah, you know what, I'm getting more, and that that this makes more sense for us. Uh, For there to be legislation or something like that, I don't see that happening, but I do see more and more places investigating it and seeing if it works for them. Why not try it over the summer, right? It's like, hey, we're taking every Friday off for the next two months. And a lot of companies companies are already doing that. Another text here from someone who says, some of my coworkers are pushing for us to go to a four-day work week with 10-hour days. Might work for office jobs, but I think I'd collapse from exhaustion after the third 10-hour day. This person works outside a strenuous job. Mm. Let us know what you think. 204-780-6868. You can weigh in on Facebook. We put up a poll there and a poll on our 680-CJOB Instagram story. It's our small town salute. It's brought to you by South Beach Casino and Resort. It's true. Get real cash back on your play. Find out more at southbeachcasino.ca. And Brett McGarry, typically when we reach out to this individual, it's because something bad has happened in northern Manitoba. Today we're celebrating Churchill. Here is Michael Spence, the mayor of that great community. Mayor Spence, we're used to talking to you when, when things aren't great up in Churchill, you know, disasters and washed out rail lines, uh, economic changes, but things are pretty good for your community right now. What's going on up there? Well, there's a lot going on. I mean, uh, right now, uh, this is uh, the, uh, we're full into the polar bear season. So we've got a lot of tourists. We've got the community buzzing. Um, we got media. We've got, uh, We've got all kinds of people here, and it's all part of uh, Churchill showcasing northern Manitoba. So the port is operating as well at a fairly good clip, I understand? Exactly. We just had the last vessel sail out of the port of Churchill about 3.15 this morning. So that vessel loaded, and it's gone with uh, Canadian uh, grain to, I believe, Egypt, I think it is. So what was Kate Upton doing in Churchill with her husband, Houston Astros pitcher Justin Verlander? 
Yeah, they were up last weekend. They were part of the, uh, she's an ambassador with PBI, and they were there for the unveiling of the uh, polar bear uh, research facility. Uh, we're pretty proud of that. Uh, it was great to see them. And uh, there'll be more, naturally, people that are interested will come to Churchill and basically uh, provide the good word of, uh, you know, helping Churchill continue to prosper as a tourism destination, but also as a science and research destination as well. Obviously, having the rail line back in service has been life-altering for your, your citizens. Just how big of a deal has it been, Mayor Spence? Oh, God. I mean, naturally, as uh, everybody's aware, that we were without rail service for about 18 months. Uh, you know, it took, uh, it took some hard work. We had to roll up our sleeves. Uh, it, was, uh, it was negotiating with the federal government and... Uh, you know, we got some new partners like Fairfax and uh, AGT, communities along the rail line that all came together, uh, Manitobans came together. Actually, you know what, we got support right across Canada in terms of the challenges we're faced with, uh, with uh, you know, the high cost of foods and not able to travel from, uh, you know, just to see loved ones in uh, other communities in Manitoba. So Polar Bears International House, uh, how, what sort of what level of interest has there been in this interpretive center so far? Well, actually, I mean they're going to spread the good word that uh, uh, that there needs to be a lot more done in terms of coexisting with bears. Uh, Churchill's always been known as a uh, you know been very uh, cautious in terms of you know how we treat bears, how we manage bears. So we're going to team up with them. Uh, they put, uh, you know, a huge investment into our community. Not only there was, uh, they have one house, they've got another one that's nearing completion. So, you know, there's a lot of work to do. Uh, climate change is upon us, and uh, we will work with them so that we can spread the good work and make sure that bears continue to exist uh, w- uh, with us in North Manitoba. Can we take the train yes. up there all winter long, Mayor Spence? Absolutely. I mean, the train is up and running. Uh, it'll continue to. It'll continue to, uh, you know, help us prosper, you know, as communities uh, in northern Manitoba. You know, we're pretty excited about the future. There's a lot of work to do, but uh, we're excited and uh, we'll definitely get there. As you know, we're, we're probably, well, I know that we're, you know, uh, Lonely Planet has selected Churchill, you know, as a top Canadian destination we're the only one in that category. Uh, we've got an abundance of blue wells, northern lights. We're just a great tourism destination. You know, as Canada celebrate, or Manitoba celebrates its uh, 150, we invite Manitobans to come to the top of our province and get a taste and see and feel what we have to offer. Thank you, Mayor Spence. We always appreciate your time and good times and bad. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. You can always hear the excitement in Mayor Michael Spence's voice from Churchill. Now, Churchill, you mentioned this, Brett, grabbing headlines in the last week or so. Supermodel Kate Upton, who is in fact an ambassador for Polar Bears International, and her husband, pitcher with the Houston Astros, Justin Verlander, were in the northern Manitoba community. Jeff York is Senior Director of Conservation with Polar Bears International, and he joins us for a bonus segment on Small Town Salute. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning from minus 22 Churchill. Hey, right on. Well, great to connect with you, Jeff. And uh, you led the Polar Bears International House project. So tell us a little bit about this new facility in Churchill. Sure. It's been two years in the making, and we kind of got caught in the, the same issues the community did with the train going down we had everything queued up to build out of winnipeg and higher manitoba and all of a sudden we had to look at building by ship and bringing things around a long way and so it made things take a lot longer and become a lot more complicated but it got built and so so tell us about this relationship with uh danny reese and a very very generous gift from his family foundation to help make this all possible Absolutely. So Danny is very passionate about the Arctic and specifically about polar bear conservation. And so over the past number of years, he not only joined our board, but he became the chair of PBI's board and has been a great leader for our organization as we've been able to grow, especially grow our presence in Canada. And this generous donation from his family foundation was just 
you know, an evolution of that ongoing commitment and really strengthens uh, the base, the foundation for PBI Canada uh, here in Manitoba. I'm just looking at the list of what Polar Bears International House will do and provide. And uh, it sounds like it's a, an extraordinarily versatile facility in that it is both for, you know, work to be done, but I guess also play in the sense that the public can visit as well. Absolutely. Building up in the north is expensive, so we wanted to make the space as multi-useful as possible. So this time of year when we have lots of visitors coming in from around the world, it's largely an interpretive center, you know, getting out the best science. It's a space to give public presentations in the evenings. In the kind of in-between times of year, it'll be a space for community groups to use and have meetings. Um, we're hoping to to hold a working group with the town focused on polar bears coming up here in January. And then for us too, it provides a home base for visiting scientists and researchers who are in the Churchill area. We're partnering with the Center for Northern Studies and Parks Canada and others. So we're we're trying to add uh, to what's available up in the community and make sure we're not duplicating anything. Well, Jeff, we want to thank you for the work that you're doing. Thanks for making some time for us this morning. And uh, I also see that there's uh, uh, something uh, there for broadcast and media crews at Polar Bear House. So we'll have to come and see you one of these days. Please do. We'd love to have you. We really appreciate it. That is Jeff York. He is Senior Director of Conservation with Polar Bears International. He led the Polar Bears International House Project, and he joined us from Churchill on this week's edition of Small Town Salute. Mackling and McGarry McNabb back Tuesday. You snobs! (laughs) You stupid stuck-up! Toffee-nosed, half-witted, upper-class piles of <laughs> That was John Cleese addressing the crowd last night at the Centennial Concert Hall. <laughs> no, that's not what that was. That was from Faulty Towers, but... I was going to say, that, that is fantastic. It sounded familiar as well. But he did. Uh, there were multiple times where he would talk down to the crowd. You'd call them all you less-than-ordinary people, you you know, regular, average uh, peons, kind of stuff like that. But that was that was his shtick that he was this curmudgeon. He was in town for the last time to see me before I die tour, and I got to hang out backstage because I got to do the Q and A at the end of the show. So the show was great. He told stories about Monty Python. He played clips. It was a multimedia show where he would play clips and talk about the writing process and. He talked about faulty towers, and there was one point where he did this audience interaction thing because he said, if one more person comes up to me and and says how much my work means to them and how faulty towers is their favorite show and Monty Python is their favorite show, I'm just going to jump in a lake. So instead of all of you doing it all one by one after the show, let's just do it all together, shall we? So he had this thing on the screen where the audience had to read along with it, and it would say... Hey, John, I love Faulty Towers. It's my favorite. (laughs) But then halfway through, it changed to the audience swearing at him and calling him names as they were being prompted to by the screen. (laughs) So he kind of turns around and says, what? What's going on here? So he was clearly having fun with this idea that he's a a grumpy old man. But when I did the Q&A, I was provided with an iPad, and the audience had been encouraged to send email questions And we were talking earlier, and they figured there'd be a handful. And uh, so I just had Gmail open, and I was just going to put a star uh, beside all of the emails that I liked. Well, there were like 200 emails that I had to sift through. Oh, my word. So I'm going through these emails during the second half, getting ready to go out and do the Q&A. So it was kind of awkward because one of the the good ones came in at 710, and then 50 emails up the page is the next one that I put a star beside. So I had to ask the question and then scroll, 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 scroll while he's answering the Mm -hmm. question. You looked really attentive, I'm sure. And well, and then there was one point where Gmail crashed. Oh, no. When I went looking for the next question, thank, I mean, I had my own questions, and I was able to play off some of the stuff that he had done in his show. But I had a, a almost full-blown panic because while we're used to public speaking and we're used to interviewing people, it was, it's John Cleese. Like, the guy is a legend. So I awkwardly got to 
do a get a picture with him backstage after. You can see said awkward pictures on our 680. It's not CJB awkward. Instagram. It's just two guys hanging out, which is the coolest thing about it. It felt awkward. But. Yeah, well, it doesn't it, it just looks super neat and he was really neat too like despite of this curmudgeonly character he's a very nice man yeah he was very nice to us when we spoke to him on the phone a few weeks ago and i kind of fall into that category of people that loves faulty towers and he called me on a couple of things which was great and you know how many years we've been calling him john cleese yeah cleese rhymes <laughs> with cheese well, and i said that on stage too and uh, I, in one of the questions the last name came up, and he said, well, it's actually uh, Cleese. It's not Cleese. It's like cheese. It's a stupid name. So he may, he turned it around into a bit. He didn't throw me under the bus. He probably hears that all the time. Pure still, class. I felt like an idiot. I, well, but I am an idiot, especially sitting b- beside a, a whip-smart man like John Cleese, the Oscar-nominated legendary John Cleese at the Centennial Concert Hall last night. Go to our Instagram to see some pictures. Having surgery is serious. Anytime you go under the knife and anesthesia, it is tough on your body and there are risks. Yeah, Canada's healthcare systems fare well in some areas compared with other OECD countries, particularly in quality of care. However, there are a few areas where we are falling behind, especially when it comes to patient safety. New data released by the Canadian Institute for Health Information, you might hear them referred to as CHI-HI, shows that Canada's overall performance aligns with the international average for 32 out of 57 health indicators, but that we are below average for 12 indicators and above average for 13. One area of concern from the report stood out for us. Christina Lawand is senior researcher with Kaihai and she joins us now. Good morning, Christina. Good morning. Why don't we start with the good news? Sometimes we like the bad news first, but let's start with the good news. And uh, where do we do well? Well, we find that Canada does pretty well in some measures of quality of care. And we could think of some big things here like survival rates uh, after breast or colon cancer. So when we look at five-year survival rates, for example, after breast cancer, we're talking about uh, 88% of women who survive and more than two-thirds of people who have colon cancer survive after five years. And those numbers are significantly better than the average of uh, more than 30 OECD countries. So that's really good news for Canada. And we also do quite well on things like uh, preventing the flu. So more Canadian seniors get their flu shot every year than seniors in other countries. And we know that this, the flu can actually be quite devastating and deadly. So that's also good news for Canada. Uh, you know, there's other areas, for example, and, you know, we have some good, better lifestyle habits. Smoking rates are lower here. And overall, more Canadians report that they feel healthy, which isn't a bad thing either. Now, there are areas for improvement, and this is the one that really concerned our colleague, Loren McNabb. Rates of foreign objects left behind in patients after surgery increased by 14% across Canada over five years. Yes, that's right. So this is an indicator we've been following uh, for a few years, and it's a little bit um, concerning on a couple of levels. Uh, First of all, so we note that between 2016 and 2018, more than 550 foreign objects, so that's we're talking about things like sponges or surgical instruments, were, were left behind in Canadian patients after surgery. And these are what we call never events. So these are events that should never ever happen and uh, that rate in Canada is uh, about twice the average of other countries and more alarming still is that it seems to be increasing over the past uh, five or six years. You know I mentioned anesthesia and Brett did uh, before we brought you on here and I mean there are risks and the and the risks are very small but you know there are some people who are affected some people who do encounter issues including death on the operating table so even though it's 550 plus objects over a period of three years if you're one of those people who experiences this it's a big deal 
Oh, a- absolutely. Um, you know, this shouldn't be minimized. It's a very small number relative to the overall number of, of, of surgeries that happen in Canada. But every event is an event that shouldn't have happened, and that can have very serious consequences for patients. Uh, it also means that, you know, they're, they're obviously sick. Sometimes these things are only caught, you know, much later when, when their health uh, deteriorates. They need to go back, uh, get surgery to take the object out. So that's, you know, a longer time of recuperation. It's a burden on patients, their families, and it also costs more money for the health system. Has anybody ever suffered any, you mentioned the serious consequences, anybody ever suffered like really serious consequences because some sort of tool is in their stomach? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the data we're releasing today, uh, we were not, uh, we don't have that detail uh, about A, what was left behind and B, what was the, the, the ultimate consequence. I think we need to do more analysis to figure that out. But we know very broadly speaking that patient safety is a huge concern in Canada. So the Canadian Patient Safety Institute, for example, estimates that uh, every year, uh, you know, more than 20,000 Canadians die because of a medical error or incident. So it is, it is very concerning and it can have very serious consequences. I know just from uh, being with my sons over the last several years, they've both had surgery. And even at their young age, the conversation that the surgeon has with them, obviously with parents present, is very different than anything I ever remember in terms of having my own surgeries. They're very, very deliberate in terms of making sure, first of all, you are who you say you are and who you're supposed to be. And they, you know, if you're getting a, a operation on one side of your body where you might have a body part on the left and right-hand side of the body, they make sure, like, there are a whole host of questions. It feels as though that, that methodology has gotten much more intense over the years. And that's absolutely correct, and uh, and that's actually a good thing. Um, I I had surgery myself a couple of years ago and noticed exactly the same thing, that I was being asked a lot more questions than I would have been in the past. So these are all part of the sort of best practices. So to increase communication with the patients as well as between the health professionals themselves. So in terms of foreign objects left behind, one of the best practices is, is to have a surgical safety checklist where. Um, all of the operating team will uh, count all of the surgical instruments and objects before, during, and after the surgery to make sure that they can account for everything and that, you know, no more mistakes were done before they, you know, sew back the patient up, so to speak. You can read more on this at kaihai.ca, that's C-I-H-I.ca. Christina Lewan, Senior Researcher with Kaihai, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Christina, thank you very much for the time. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Mackling and McGarry, McNabb is back next Tuesday. 680 CJOB is proud to support St. Boniface Hospital Foundation's Radiothon of Hope and Healing next Friday, November 15th, alongside our friends at Peggy at 99.1, Power 97, Presented by the Vicar Automotive Group, we invite you to join us from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. to hear stories from patients and donors about life-saving patient care and groundbreaking medical research at St. Boniface Hospital. And it's all about stories, right, Brett? And this idea of sharing stories uh, and about how your contributions allow people to get their lives back following a major incident in their life, an illness or, or an injury. And we're going to introduce you to someone today who was on the road for a job in 2016. And our guest suffered an accident that has had long-lasting impacts on her life. One of the first times, pardon me, one of the first snows of the year, the streets were slippery, heavy, wet snow coated every surface. And on a sign outside a restaurant was so laden with snow that as Melissa passed underneath the sign, a heavy load of snow dropped right on her head. Though employees found the event comical, because this is, it's a one in a million incident, it changed Melissa Gowerluck's life instantly, and she has joined us now live in studio, and we're also on Facebook Live, so hello to those who are on Facebook. Melissa, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So how quickly after the incident did you realize something was wrong? I knew immediately that I had whiplash. I couldn't move my head. Um, but, but beyond that, I didn't know that there was any other issues. 
And a couple days later, I started getting really nauseous and dizzy, and I just didn't feel right. And I started going up to my family doctor. Um, I also ended up going to the hospital because my symptoms kept getting worse. So I ended up having issues with walking, with talking, and uh, I was nobody could connect the dots as to what was wrong. One doctor even told me that they thought I had possibly had MS by the way I was walking. Um, and then fast forward to June. So this is the accident happened in January of 2017. And then in June, um, I was working an event and I got hit in the back of the head again with a banner stand pool. And I ended up going to St. Boniface Hospital saying, I got hit in the head the first time and I've had all these symptoms. Nobody knows what's going on. Now I got hit a second time. So I went into St. Boniface Hospital, and that's when the doctor said, why are you not treating your first concussion? And that was the first time I heard that word. That day I was pulled off work, um, and I started seeking out different treatments that I can do. So St. Boniface Hospital is the one that actually put me on the track to healing. So uh, to backtrack, six months previous when that snow fell on you, no one used the word concussion as a possibility for your injury? No one. That's a, that's a little bit frightening in this day and age. So, yes. you know, this ties into something we've been talking about this morning. I can only guess, do you watch hockey at all? Did you Have you seen what happened to Brian Little the other night? And, you know, he had had a concussion, was in concussion protocol for the first nine games of the season. Then he gets hit in the head with a puck, 30 stitches. Uh, horrifying for anybody yes. that has either undergone that themselves or just anybody just... Who, who cares at all about the person in the uniform? Yeah, brain injury is so scary because the person still looks normal. So people look at you and say, well, what's your problem? You look fine, um, but you have all these symptoms. And so in the first couple of months, I was questioning myself as to like, I look normal. I'm not getting any answers from doctors, but I, I, I'm not feeling well to the point where, you know, I can't properly form a sentence. So I'm I'm very thankful to St. Boniface and that I did go there that day. Well, because, I, like I say, I can't believe that, that the word concussion was not used originally. So then you get this clarity. Right. What happens after that in terms of, so now you know what you're dealing with. That That's half the battle sometimes, isn't it? Yes. So then I started seeking out different treatments and I found um, that I could go and do vestibular therapy to help me with that balance issues that I was having. Um, then I was also like seen an osteopath to help promote uh, blood flow back to my brain because that was something that was missing as well. Um, and then just lots of rest. And uh, you know, I also had to go to vision therapy. So the um, brain injury also caused my eyes not to work together as a team. So I had to go to vision therapy for a year and a half. So that was causing my symptoms of being nauseous all the time. Um, so for the first year and a half, I was pretty much nauseous 24 hours a day. So it was like horrific symptoms. How are you now? Um, I'm better now. I actually just started going back to work on a gradual basis, September 30th. So that was really exciting for me to get that um, um, okay from the doctors to try going back to work. In terms of uh, friends and, and family and work, that can be sometimes the biggest challenge is yes. how do they understand what I'm going through? Yeah, and not everyone does. And sometimes you also find friends out there that you didn't have before. So I started going to Love Your Brain uh, Yoga, which is a free program that's offered in the city. Can you repeat that one more time? So it's Love Your Brain Yoga. Okay. So it's a yoga program for people that have sustained brain injuries. And it's completely free. So when you're going through something like a brain injury and you're not working, you don't have the money to go and pay for everything. Like I've spent about $65,000 out of my pocket on treatments. So it was really nice seeing that we have a program here for people. And not only is it an hour of yoga, um, they do 10 minutes of yoga uh, meditation and then 20 minutes where you can get together as a group and talk so that you can meet other people that are experiencing the same difficulties that you are. Now I know enough not to ask a, a, a woman how old she is, but you're like you're in your prime of your life, or, or yes. at least you're supposed to be. So this this hits particularly hard, not only career wise, financially, but in terms of what you should be doing with your life right now. Right. I didn't date for over two years. 
I thought, who would want to date somebody who has a brain injury? And meeting other people that were in the same situation as me my age that were out dating gave me the confidence to get out there again and start living my life because I really isolated myself for two years. So are you back out there? I am. Good for you. Yes. (laughs) Melissa, thank you for this. Thank you. Melissa Gowerluck is her name. Just one of the many stories you're going to hear for the St. Boniface Hospital Foundation Radiothon of Hope and Healing. 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Friday, November 15th with 680 CJOB. Our friends Peggy at 99.1 and Power 97 broadcasting live from the Everett Atrium at St. Boniface Hospital, and it's all presented by our friends at Vicar Automotive Group. You can donate right now if you call 237-7647. That's 204-237-7647. Or you can go to stbhf.ca. That's stbhf.ca. Mackling and McGarry McNabb back on Tuesday. We've been telling you about it all this week, all last week, this weekend at the Centennial Concert Hall, Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday afternoon. It is Superhero Showdown, and it's a show that the Couch Potatoes, me and Jeff Braun, managed to weasel our way into because back in February, we were with the WSO for Star Wars versus Star Trek, and they invited us to join them on stage as hosts, as narrators, so to speak, sat on a couch on stage at the Centennial Concert Hall, which was simultaneously one of the weirdest and one of the coolest things ever, because I could reach out if I wanted to and yank the viol- like the arm of one of the violinists <laughs> if I wanted to just be a jerk. I would suggest that you do that just for fun, but then this would be the last time we ever have a guest from the WSO. And yeah. We loved speaking to the WSO, and these gigs are a ton of fun for you and Jeff Braun. They are, so we are very excited to be back for Superhero Showdown. And right now we're going to talk to the man behind this show because this is a traveling show that he is bringing to the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. He is the conductor. His name is Stuart Chaffetz, and he joins us live now on 680 CJOB. Stuart, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. So where are you joining us from this morning? Uh, north of San Francisco in Marin County on my way to travel to Winnipeg uh, this afternoon. Okay. So you're in California. <laughs> <laughs> you're in California right now. I think I know why Greg's laughing, but Greg, go ahead. Yeah, it's kind of cold here. It's sort of like the day I went to, it's called, uh, what, what's the baseball stadium now called for the Giants? It's an AT&T park. <laughs> And I, 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 I took I took the ferry from Marin County over to uh, Pier 23 or 31, wherever it docks. And I think it was 82 degrees in Marin County. And when I got to the baseball game, uh, I think it was, I think, 57 degrees. A Pack Bell Park is what it was called at the time, but I think they call it something else now. So you're, you're in for a much more dramatic weather change than that when you come up to Winnipeg, Stewart. But you're going to love it. <laughs> well, I can't wait. I'm really looking forward to it. I got the boots out. I dusted them off. Uh, I found a winter jacket. Uh, I'm just getting ready and psyched, but I know that the heat is going to just come pouring off the stage during our superheroes showdown with you guys. So tell us about this show that you've put together that uh, we're very thrilled to be a part of. Well, you know, it, it was such a need for uh, the love of superheroes uh, in the concert hall, I, I believe, and especially for orchestral pops. When you have the theme songs from these great movies, uh, you know, performed live on stage with the music just wafting over you as an audience member, there's nothing like it. I mean, you, you can appreciate the movie, uh, but when you're in, you know, in front of that that concert hall right there with the with the musicians just wailing, uh, it, it adds a whole other dimension to the life of the film, and you realize at that moment that the music plays like a huge important role in the storyline of the film. And that's why we love it so much. That's why, you know, it sticks with us during, during the day because these themes are, uh, you know, just incredibly killer. And um, that's why I put this show together because it's all of the, the best hits and the, and the coolest music. What kind of music are we going to hear? Oh my gosh. We've got uh, captain America theme. We've got theme from the Avengers we got X-Men Last Stand. we got Rise of the Silver Surfer. Uh, we got some old school stuff, too, like when we listen to our superheroes on the radio, like 
um, the Lone Ranger theme, William Tell. We've got Robin Hood, talk about old school and men in tights. Um, we've got uh, Wonder Woman. Of course, we have to tip our hat to the lady superheroes. Uh, we've got uh, this beautiful um, uh, James Horner theme from Rocketeer, which is gorgeous music. We've got then we got vintage and classic uh, Batman, Spider-Man, and uh, also Michael Giacchino's music from The Incredibles. Uh, you know, another wonderful composer making a great name for himself. And then we're going to end with, I think, one of the greatest uh, movies and superheroes of all, uh, the music from Superman, both old school and Man of Steel, Hans Zimmer. Uh, so we, we've got a lot of really, really wonderful uh, tunes for all, everybody. Brett was mentioning the first time he saw the Superman theme performed live was about a decade ago, and it brought tears to his eyes. And I always think about the live performances that I've seen over the years, and I have a similar relationship with live music. What is it about the live that just takes it just to another dimension and gets inside of us and hits us, as the kids might say, in the feels, Stuart? You know, that's, that is a wonderful question. I think just having that sound coming uh, right at you and surrounding you in a concert hall and seeing the energy of the orchestra playing and hearing just the – it's almost like a vibration that just kind of smacks you right in the, in the chest. Uh, there's nothing like it. I mean, you could blast – as much music as you want on speakers or the surround sound, but this is like a different level completely. It's like Spinal Tap turning it to 11, you know what I mean? <laughs> What's it like having to work with a different orchestra every time you do this show? Is it ever, does it ever provide a challenge, or, is it, or are these guys all just pros and you just walk in and do the job? Well, <laughs> um, I would say every orchestra is a little different, but yet at the same time, every orchestra is the same. And when you get to this level, like this wonderful Winnipeg Symphony, uh, they're pros. So they're going to come in uh, and uh, lay it down. We have one rehearsal, as you know, but that's a testament to the Winnipeg Symphony to be able to kind of go through this music in one rehearsal and then just sound magnificent and, and then, you know, the next three nights. So where do you go from here after you leave Winnipeg? Always interested to know what the what the agenda is, Stuart. Sure. Uh, the following weekend, I'm going to be with the Cincinnati Pops in Cincinnati, Ohio, doing my totally 80s show. So talk about uh, uh, a fun party. We're going to be doing uh, music from the 80s decade, which, of course, I went to college during that time, so it meant a lot to me. And I said, well, you know, there's, all those people coming to concerts now who remember the 80s, when we first started going to concerts, it was the big bands, and everybody was really into the big bands. Now it's like people are talking, you know, you hear 80s music all the time. Uh, so I've got this show called Totally 80s, and we're just going to wail uh, with the Cincinnati Pops, one of the flagship uh, pops orchestras in the, in the world, actually. Well, when you talk about 80s music, my kids are 13, and they always say, Dad, you're so lucky to grow up in the 80s, all that great music. <laughs> and, of course, they're, they're kind of rock and rollers. But, you know, Kiss and Metallica in particular. I remember ELO way back in the late 1970s performed with the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra, I believe, oh on one gosh. of their biggest albums. So this this is not a brand-new marriage for for uh, rock and roll, right, if, if we want to talk about that totally. for 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. And, and here's the thing. I mean, also, um, you know, so influenced. Everything is so influenced by, by the 80s, but the 80s were influenced by the 60s and 70s. Everything comes from, you know, decades before, and, and it all, all goes back to great classical music where it all sort of started and that rhythmic element of it. But I, I love the fact that, you know, part of my 80s show, we've got some rush in there. So vintage Canadian rock. Uh, progressive rock, which uh, they had some beautiful hits in the 80s. So I've got uh, uh, some cool tunes uh, on that show as well. Uh, for for uh, and In fact, we're going to do it in Ottawa uh, in January, the, the Totally 80s, which we did a couple of years back, and we had so much fun. Uh, orchestra dressed up in, uh, <laughs> in the 80s garb. That's something. Now that, if you can imagine seeing like uh, Richard Simmons playing trombone, you know that's that's quite a sight. You know? <laughs> <laughs> are you gonna be? Are you gonna wear a cape or anything like that for Superhero Showdown? Hey man, you. Everyone's gonna have to, you know, come and find out. I think. Yeah. It's, well, it's gonna be a good time. Although I do need to ask you while you're here, because as I mentioned off the yes. top, the couch potatoes 
kind of weaseled our way into this show. Like this was your show, and uh, now you're you're having to share it. So, are are we going to be okay? Oh, you know that's the beautiful thing about this is that it's really a, it's a unique performance now. It's really Winnipeg's own with the couch potatoes. So it's going to be a completely different experience. And actually, looking over the script and all, I think we're going it, to. It's better. It's actually better than the show that I, I have because, uh, you, you know, there's slides and, and so there's multimedia and, and you guys commentary is, is hysterical. So I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to, to a new wonderful, uh, uh rendition. Well, Stuart Chaffetz, conductor for Superhero Show on We Can't Wait Either. So thank you for allowing us to join your party and uh, we're excited to meet you tomorrow, sir. Can you believe it? I'll be I'll, I'll get there around midnight tonight. So uh, wish me luck. Okay, Godspeed on your travel, sir. And good thing he's bringing that parka because it's a bit colder. Well, this night it says it's only eleven degrees in San Francisco right now. So well, eleven. That's uh, still a twenty degree shift. That's a pretty dramatic yeah. shift for sure. Although, looking at our forecast, not horrible for the weekend. Maybe oh, no. Stuart's going to get to see some stuff that he's not used to seeing unless he's a skier. Oh, that's right. What are we looking at tomorrow? Uh, high of minus four. And then uh, Saturday minus four, Sunday minus twelve. So it's okay. We'll, we'll get a we'll get a moat. We'll we'll I don't know how we'll get him to the airport on Sunday without experiencing the minus twelve. But uh, either way, this is really exciting. I'm I'm beyond excited for you. I know you're nervous and excited. Yeah, I get to be excited without the nervousness. So. Godspeed. Superhero Showdown. Get your tickets at WSO.ca, and you can win one more pair of tickets. We have one more pair of tickets up for grabs tomorrow morning on The Start. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global. And on Instagram, at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.